Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. And uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. We're uh, continuing our studies through the book of Romans. We're in chapter 12, last Lord's Day. Um, our brother read all of Romans chapter 12, so we didn't read it earlier. Romans chapter 12 has a lot of parallels with the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, that's why Dave read from Matthew chapter 6. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ lays out um, basically the righteous requirements of the law, which Paul unfolds for us in Romans chapter 8. He, he says that Jesus came into the world in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And uh, before Romans chapter 8, Paul spent a lot of time explaining how we're all under sin. We can't possibly be saved by our own works. Um, our works are as filthy rags because our uh, hearts are corrupted, fallen, tainted by sin so that no matter what we do is always polluted by sin. We, we can never live up to the righteous requirements of the law. So that's why Jesus came. He took our place. He paid the penalty that our sins deserved, even as Wes was just explaining. But then he doesn't leave us alone. Uh, to quote the reformers, justifying, um, we're, we're justified by faith alone, and yet justifying faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by good works and the fruit of salvation. So God saves us by his grace. He keeps us by his grace, thank God. But then he also transforms us by his grace. And uh, we read about that in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, where Paul wrote, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service because God did everything to redeem us. Now we owe him everything. It's our reasonable service to offer back to God our lives, not to pay him back, but because he has been so gracious and merciful in redeeming us to himself by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he continues in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's the life now as those who have been justified, declared righteous in God's sight by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone, now we're called to live transformed lives. Lives that actually are uh, Godward, that actually are in the direction of conformity with God's law, even as Jesus preached uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so in verses 3 through 8, 
Paul goes on to describe the, uh, the context for this transformed life. It's in the context of fellowship with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And then in verses 9 through 13, he goes on to uh, give us some specific instructions to, uh, to regulate, to direct our corporate communal shared life together in the body of Christ, as well as with our, our neighbor. And so we made it through seven out of the 10 instructions there in verses 9 through 13 last Sunday. So love genuinely, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, show honor, serve the Lord frequently, fervently, excuse me, rejoice in hope, endure tribulation patiently. And then that brings us up to uh, verse 12. Um, we, we started verse 12 where we read, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And in verse 12, Paul moves from hope to endurance to prayer. And uh, that's where we're going to, to pick things up now at the end of verse 12. Be constant in prayer. By the way, this same movement from hope to endurance to prayer, Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 through 27, where he wrote, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees, but we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there's our hope. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So here's our endurance. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. So our endurance naturally moves us to prayer. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to purpose. So from hope to endurance to prayer. So at the end of verse 12, Paul says, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer prayer. And uh, Presbyterian pastor and theologian John Murray wrote, the measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation, remember that's what Paul had been speaking about, be patient in tribulation. And so the measure of perseverance in the midst of tribulation is the measure of our diligence in prayer. Well, what is prayer? Lots of people talk about prayer. Lots of people pray. What is prayer? That's one of the questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98 to be exact. And uh, the answer is thoroughly biblical and 
very concise. So what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ. Remember, Jesus said, praying in my name with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's what prayer is. That's what the Bible means when it talks about prayer. That's what Paul means here when he says, be constant in prayer. And when Paul says to be constant in prayer, he means to occupy ourselves diligently in prayer. And uh, that same language is used with reference to prayer other places. Paul, in Colossians 4 and verse 2, wrote, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. The, the exact same verb, be constant in prayer, continue steadfastly in it. And uh, for, for those of you who were in our prayer meeting this morning, here's a bit of repetition for you. Um, prayer, it turns out, is, a lot, is like other means of grace, spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. There's personal application and there, there's a corporate application. Uh, so when it comes to the word of God, for example, we're supposed to have a regular daily intake of God's word and, and meditate in it day and night. But then there's a corporate application we're supposed to um, take advantage of the teaching gifts that God has provided to the church that we saw in verses 3 through 8 in Romans chapter 12. If pastors are supposed to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season, then Christians are supposed to be under the preaching of the word in season and out of season. So when it comes to the intake of God's word, there's a private application, there's a corporate application. Same thing with prayer. As Christians, we're definitely to be constant in prayer. We're definitely supposed to pray without ceasing, as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. But there's also a corporate application of this command to pray. And it turns out this is how the church was actually born. So keep your finger here in Romans chapter 12, or put your marker there like I'm doing, and turn back to the previous book in the New Testament canon, Acts chapter 1. And here's just a couple of reminders. We've seen these things before as a church. Good to be reminded. In uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, the context here is the upper room. Jesus has ascended. He was raised from the dead. Then he spent some 40 days with his disciples. And then he, he ascended bodily into heaven. And uh, the angel of the Lord told the disciples that he's going to come in like manner someday the day of the Lord. But in the meantime, here, 
the disciples are by themselves. This is the Christian church in the world at that particular time. And what were they doing? Well, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, this is what we read. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. The same kind of language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, to be constant in prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So probably when they're by themselves in their own households, they were devoting themselves to prayer as well. But here, what the Holy Spirit moved Luke to record for us is that they were together with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Because that's what their spiritual instinct was. They didn't know what else to do, basically. They knew to gather themselves together. They knew that they were confused, that they felt helpless. They they didn't know exactly what to do next. And so their spiritual instinct was to cry out to the Lord in prayer. And then this continued. The day of Pentecost comes. And then uh, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches the sermon of his life. And in uh, response to that sermon, in verse 37, when, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 41, so those who um, received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they go from about 120-ish to 3,000 in addition to them. And what did the early church do? What characterized their communal life together? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves, the same language that we see in Romans 12 and verse 12, be constant, persistent in prayer, and they devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Not all English translations have the definite article the there at the end of verse 42, but it's there in the Greek. That's part of what Luke wrote, the prayers. What that implies is that there were agreed upon occasions for prayers. That's when the, um, the Christians agreed that they're going to gather themselves together so that like in Acts chapter 1, they could be with one accord, and in chapter 4, they can have one voice and lift up their voices together, their hearts together in unison, corporately as the body of Christ in prayer. And the early church 
didn't just have prayer from time to time, but like these other spiritual disciplines, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, communion, they were devoted as well to the prayers. Um, last year, was it last year? No, it was September of 2020. The first Sunday in uh, September 2020, as a church, we decided to open up our, the doors of our church building and come back inside. We, uh, earlier in 2020, like everyone else, we locked down. At some point, we, we did make our way back in, inside, and then we, were, we went back outside for a while, and uh, it was actually kind of fun. I enjoyed it until it got really hot and smoky in that summer. And then um, it dawned on us that, you know, after church, a lot of us go to Walmart and we go to Home Depot and we go to these other places. And that's because those places were designated by our government as essential. And the local church, along with strip clubs, really, were deemed non-essential. And therefore, we were subject to a fine or other penalties from the civil government if we met inside. And at that point, we, most of us, <laughs> the church leaders, were convicted that we can't go on doing this and be faithful to the Lord's uh, estimate of the value of the local church and gathering together as the body of Christ. And so that's why we came in. And when we came in, we, we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was absolutely essential so that if we did get fined or if we did go to jail or whatever the case may have been, we could point to our Bibles and say, all right, go ahead and find me or put me in jail because we're doing exactly what the early Christians did. We're doing exactly what the Bible commands us to do. And, and once again, that's being devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And that's why before we restarted our Sunday school program, we would meet together in prayer. We had a prayer meeting. And we've continued that. We've continued that because that whole experience was instructive to me personally and I think to us as a church. If we're going to do the essentials of what Christ through the apostles has called his local churches to do, yeah, we're going to hear the word of God preached. Yeah, we're going to sing like we just did. Yeah, we're going to observe the Lord's table. But we also need to pray as a church. And so we've continued our, our prayer meeting. And that's because of instructions like we see in Romans 12, 12, but also... Um, because of what we see in terms of the example of the early church. 
Um, these instructions to be constant in prayer, to pray without ceasing, applies to us as individuals, but also to us as, as a church. And that's why in our church's core values, we say that dependence on God is a core value. And we say regarding dependence on God, without Christ, we can do nothing. Therefore, we will express our dependence on God through our words, attitudes, and the central place of prayer in our church life. That's why I think it's a good thing that one of our regular weekly meetings is a prayer meeting because of the central place of prayer in our church life. When we pray, like Jesus instructed in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, when we're not putting on a show, when we're not trying to just be religious, but we're being sincere, when we pray, we're saying, God, we need you. God, we're helpless. God, draw near. Enable us, empower us to do what you've commanded us to do. That's what prayer literally says. And so I know I need to grow in my personal prayer life. Uh, I have not arrived in my personal prayer life. I suspect that there's no one here who would have the nerve to raise his or her hand and say, I pray all that I need to pray. I have arrived. I'm sure we all need to grow in our prayer lives, but we also need to grow in our church prayer life. And so, brothers and sisters, um, would you try, would you try, as your schedule permits, as your life permits, would you try to devote yourselves to the church prayer meeting? All right, pray or be constant in prayer. Next, secondly this morning, but number nine overall in verses nine through 13, this is the will of God for transformed lives. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints. We see that in verse 13. First half, contribute to the needs of the saints. The word there translated contribute means to, to participate in the needs of the saints. In other words, to identify ourselves with the needs of the saints, to make the needs of the saints our own needs. That's what that means. Just as in the church, there's a mutual sharing in one another's gifts. That's what we saw in verses 3 through 8. This mutual sharing in one another's spiritual gifts or gifts of grace. So we are also to share in one another's needs. That's what this command means. Participate in the needs of the saints. Later on in Romans chapter 15 and verse 25, Paul writes this. 
At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. This was a very real and um, practical element of Paul's ministry. He went around different regions, different cities. He preached the gospel. He made disciples, planted churches. He instructed those churches and helped those churches to grow spiritually. But he also went around and distributed relief. And it turns out that the saints in Jerusalem were in a period of time when probably because of persecution, probably also because a lot of the early believers in that particular time were in the lower echelon of the socioeconomic ladder. They were poor, but they were in great need. And just as James says, it's just not good enough to say, be warm and filled to your brother. When you, when you know that he's in need, you, you've got to actually meet that need. So it wasn't enough for the Apostle Paul to say, hey, brothers and sisters in Rome, pray for your brethren in Jerusalem. They're poor and needy. No, that wasn't good enough. And so he organized a distribution. He would go around to various churches and uh, receive their contributions and then make sure that that got to, to Jerusalem. So this was a very practical thing. We're also told in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 18, there, there were believers who were more wealthy in the early church, just as there are today. And uh, Paul told Timothy to uh, instruct those wealthy believers. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And just in case you're thinking to yourself, well, it's a good thing I'm not rich. I promise you that if the Apostle Paul would be able to walk through our church, walk through our homes and our Walmart, thank you, Brother Michael. We are rich. Make no mistake about it. And so this command is definitely to us to be generous and ready to share. Amy Carmichael, who lived from 1867 to 1951, uh, I think her most famous book is, um, actually it's a biography of her, A Chance to Die. She was an Irish Christian missionary uh, in India. She opened an orphanage and founded a mission in India, in the city of uh, Donover. She served there for 55 years without a furlough. And she wrote 35 books about the missionary work there. And in her biography, A Chance to Die, there's this quote from her. Amy Carmichael said, 
You can always give without loving, but you can never love without giving. That's very true. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Then Paul moves on in Romans chapter 12 to touch on another command here that's part of the will of God for transformed lives. And if you think about it, it's a specific way in which we contribute to the needs of the saints. He says at the end of verse 13, to seek to show hospitality. Remember that to contribute to the needs of the saints simply means to participate in their need. To be generous and ready to share. Well, hospitality just means to be generous and ready to share when it comes to our homes. Hospitality means to share our homes with others. And when Paul says to seek, to show hospitality, it means to be given to hospitality, to be active in the pursuit of hospitality. Not just begrudgingly, by the way. Peter addressed that. 1 Peter 4, 9. Peter wrote to Christians, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And you can imagine why being hospitable would tempt us to grumble, can't you? It takes work. It takes time. It takes resources, and a lot of us would rather just be left alone. And so for an apostle like Paul or like Peter to come along and tell us that we're to be given to hospitality, that could cause a complaining spirit to arise within us. And that's why Peter has to remind us to be hospitable without Grumbling. I quoted to you from Hebrews chapter 13 earlier. Here's Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. You never know who you might be showing hospitality to. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And one complaint of people sometimes is, I don't want to have someone in my home that I don't know. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. You never know how strange they really are. They might be angels. And then remember the words of Jesus, Matthew 25 and verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Do you remember how that whole exchange goes on when believers will say, Lord, when were you hungry and I gave you food? When were, were you thirsty and I gave you 
drink. And he, Jesus goes on to say, well, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so it's good for us to look beyond the individuals whom we're hospitable to. Maybe they are a pain in the neck. Maybe they're not thankful. Maybe it was a lot of work. But look past them and see Jesus. Hospitality is so important that it's a, it's a, um, a requirement for elders. First Timothy, uh, First Timothy 3 and verse 2 Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. It was also a requirement for widows who were supported by the church, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 10. I'd like to read for you a little bit from this little book called um, The Hospitality Commands by Alexander Strzok. He wrote, I don't think most Christians today understand how essential hospitality is to fanning the flames of love and strengthening the Christian family. Hospitality fleshes out love in a uniquely personal and sacrificial way. Through the ministry of hospitality, we share our most prized possessions. We share our family, home, finances, food, privacy, and time. Indeed, we share our very lives. So hospitality is always costly. Through the ministry of hospitality, we provide friendship, acceptance, fellowship, refreshment, comfort, and love in one of the richest and deepest ways possible for humans to understand. Unless we open the doors of our homes to one another, the reality of the local church as a close-knit family of loving brothers and sisters is only a theory. He also writes, it is around a table friends perceive best the warmth of being together. And then uh, finally, he concludes this section by saying, uh, if you want new Christians to grow, open your home and share your love and knowledge with them. Your home is the best tool you have to enhance loving Christian community. Your local church can become a friendlier, more loving community if you and others you know consistently open your homes to one another. So once again, brothers and sisters, um, the will of God for us is that we would seek to show hospitality. I do want to give some, some words of encouragement regarding hospitality. These are going to go relatively quickly. Some words of encouragement. 
Maybe you're intimidated by what you just heard. Or maybe you're feeling the weight of bondage or a burden. The first thing I would say is that hospitality is important. We've just seen that from the word of God. Hospitality is important, but it's not the most important thing. Your, your marriage and your family still take precedence over hospitality. So, for example, husbands, don't ruin your, your wives. You're, you're still called to live with your wife in an understanding way. You're, you're called to provi uh, provide for your own household. So, don't trample over your wife and family and other responsibilities in the name of hospitality. Still, we are called to be hospitable without grumbling. So think of your home like everything else you have. This is one of the aspects of having your eyes opened by God to the truth of the gospel. One of the aspects of, of having our eyes opened is that we, we see God in everything. doesn't mean that everything is God, but God is everywhere and God is in everything. And we see that everything that we have, everything is from God. Every good and perfect gift. There's nothing that we have that we've not received. And so as believers now, like we saw in uh, Romans 12 and verse 1, now we see that in response to God's redemption of us, now it's our reasonable service to offer ourselves to God. That means our possessions, not all of our possessions. Remember the principle of the tithe, 10%. That's the numerical norm. And it's the same thing with hospitality. It's not that the whole church moves in. But just like every other gift from God, it is for our homes, your home, is a gift from God for your benefit and enjoyment, but it's also for serving God. And so if once in a while you open up your home and share your home with someone else, that is your reasonable service. Think of it that way. Here's another word of encouragement. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Don't think that hospitality in the Bible is all about making the cover of good housekeeping or being an invited guest on the Martha Stewart show, or whatever. That's not it. Keep it simple. The whole point is to be a blessing to, to others, to refresh others. Listen to Kevin DeYoung on this point. Opening our home to others is a wonderful gift and a neglected discipline in the church but we easily forget the whole point of hospitality. Think of it this way. Good hospitality is making your home 
a hospital. The idea is that friends and family and the wounded and weary people come to your home and leave helped and refreshed. Too often, hospitality is a nerve-wracking experience. We get worked up and crazy busy in all the wrong ways because we are more concerned about looking good than with doing good. Opening our homes takes time, but it doesn't have to take over our lives. Christian hospitality has much more to do with good relationships than with good food. There is a fine line between care and cumber. In many instances, less ado would serve better. Keep it simple. And here's another word of encouragement regarding hospitality. If people aren't inviting you into, into their homes, you feel left out. A couple of things. First of all, don't judge. You don't know everything that's going on in that family's situation. You don't know how hospitable that family may be to other people. Too bad it hasn't gotten around to you in a while, perhaps. But, but don't judge. Assume the best about people. And then positively, you take the initiative. You invite people into your home and put into practice the golden rule. You remember what Jesus said? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And too often we misconstrue that golden rule into saying, so whatever others actually do to you, do, do to them. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's not the golden rule. That's good old-fashioned American something-or-otherism. No, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. You want people to speak to you nicely, to engage you? Then you engage people and be nice. You want people to be hospitable to you? Then be hospitable to others. I think that the best way to get yourself invited into someone's home is to invite that person or family into your home. Try it out. And then, finally, <clears throat> don't underestimate the power of hospitality for kingdom growth. Don't underestimate the power of hospitality in kingdom growth. So here's... Strock again. The early Christians, or, or for the early Christians, the home was the most natural setting for proclaiming Christ to their families, neighbors, and friends. The same is true today. If you and or your local church are looking for ways to evangelize, opening your home is one of the best methods for reaching the lost. Most, most of us, however, 
are not using our homes as we should to reach our neighbors, friends, and relatives. Tragically, many of us don't even know our neighbors. Yet, through hospitality, we can meet our neighbors and be a lighthouse in spiritually dark neighborhoods. In <clears throat> inviting neighbors and friends into our homes for a meal provides the perfect atmosphere for sharing the gospel. And he points out that that's what the Lord did. And then he points out that the gospel itself is a gracious invitation to come and enjoy God's home and lavish banquet for eternity. So hospitality is a great way to evangelize and to, um, to make connections with, with other people. And uh, I know that there are a bunch of people in our church who are given to hospitality. And brothers and sisters, please don't grow weary while doing good. May the Lord bless you for your faithfulness and for all of us. May, may we take to heart these things, not just about hospitality, but about, about prayer, um, about being willing and, and generous to participate in the needs of others, but yes, in terms of sharing even our homes with one another. And if you're not a believer, the first step for you is to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we've, we've talked about participating and, and sharing. Do you know what Jesus did for sinners like you? The ultimate act of sharing. Jesus has always existed as God. There was never a time when Jesus was not. But in the fullness of time, Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal, infinite, uncreated Son of God came into this world and shared in our humanity. And not only that, but he shared in our <clears throat> humanity in a fallen world, a broken world. Jesus knew what it was to thirst, to be hungry, to be tired, to suffer. He shared in every aspect of our humanity except for our sinful nature. Jesus never sinned. He, never, he knew no sin. But then he shared in our sin, in that he died on the cross as our substitute. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins were laid on him in total. So that just before Jesus breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. And he rose from the dead for our justification. The point being that Jesus' hospitality, if you will, his participation in contributing to the needs of the saints, his people, involved all of himself, body and soul, laying down his life for his sheep so that we might be saved, pardoned from all of our sins, all the while God maintaining 
his righteousness, justice, and holiness. What a great message. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus invites you to if you're not a believer. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus and then serve Jesus. And then you will know a life of abundance, full and free.